This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If all of human history were written as a thousand-page book, if you're an alien reading this book, an alien anthropologist and you're reading this book, you're thinking... What's about to happen to this species? As you turn the page to page 1001, you're thinking shit's going down. They're either about to be a hyper-technological, super-advanced, long-term species, or they're about to blow themselves up. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. For the last weeks, I have been describing the first two parts of my new book of the Identity Trap you. In those, I chronicle where the set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that is so influential today actually come from. And I go on to show how they transcend campus, go from being influential in that particular rarefied world to being deeply influential in all kinds of mainstream institutions in the United States and beyond. Well, now the philosopher's fun starts. In the third part of the book, I critique carefully the main applications of these ideas to different topics. The first one is about standpoint theory and the supposed inability of people to understand each other if they stand at different intersections of identity. The second is about cultural appropriation, the broad taboo against any form of mutual cultural influence that has started to arise in many societies over the last decade. The first is about the attacks on free speech and the growing suggestion that it's somehow a right-wing value, defending the need for a culture of free speech. The fourth is a critique of what I'm calling progressive separatism, of the idea that we should encourage people to lean into their racial identity as strongly as possible, including encouraging whites to, quote-unquote, embrace their race as one progressive school in Manhattan Puts it. And the fifth is an examination of identity-sensitive public policy and the question of whether equity, or as Adolf Reed calls it, race disparitarianism, is the most helpful metric of distributive justice. So today, let me tell you about the first of these chapters, about standpoint theory and standpoint epistemology. There is, as with many of these ideas, a plausible kernel to this thought. Of course, what I know about the world is deeply influenced by the kind of experiences I have. And in a society that's structured around certain forms of identity, that itself depends on the group in which I was born. There's something very plausible to the idea that I will not naturally know the experiences that women might have with sexual harassment or that black men in the United States might have with police violence. But the idea of the popularized form of standpoint theory now goes beyond that intuitive insight. It has four main claims. The first is that all members of a particular identity group will share a set of experiences or perhaps even attributes in common with each other. The second is that those experiences or those attributes give them some superior understanding of the way that oppression 
and disadvantage works in our society. The third is that even the politically relevant pieces of that insight, of that knowledge, are not readily communicable to others, that they cannot properly share them with those who stand at different intersections of identity. And the fourth is a kind of political upshot, the exhortation, therefore, to defer to your allies, to recognize that if somebody is a member of a more oppressed group than you, then you shouldn't uh, make your own political judgment, you should simply defer to them about how to proceed on some political matter. Now, I believe, and I actually draw on this argument on the work of sophisticated feminist standpoint epistemologists, that each of these four claims is overly simplistic. For example, feminists have often argued that caregiving or having children is one of the core experiences that women have. But of course, not all women are caregivers. And in fact, some men may be single parents. So again, the boundaries between groups are more complicated and fluid than that account implies. Similarly, it's certainly plausible to think that members of oppressed identity groups may have certain kinds of insight into injustices in our society that others lack. But by the same token, they may also be excluded from other kinds of insight shared by members of dominant groups who, for example, have more access to understanding the ways in which that domination is perpetuated. The factory owner, as somebody like Friedrich Engels might point out, has insights into the operation of capitalism that a single worker might lack. And this is particularly true in situations of extreme injustice, as when people who are enslaved were excluded from elementary forms of education. The third point is that certainly there are forms of experiential knowledge, forms of understanding what something feels like that I cannot access if I haven't had those experiences. I won't ever quite know what it feels like to fear being sexually harassed on the subway or to worry that a cop who's walking down the street might beat me up under the pretext of stopping and frisking me. But that doesn't mean that the politically salient elements of that experience are not communicable, that it should be impossible for somebody who doesn't quite 100% know what that feels like to understand that those forms of a treatment are unjust and that they go against the kind of society in which we should want to live. And so that brings me forth to the political claim that we should defer to members of more oppressed groups, which needs a certain different kind of analysis. Now, this claim is very widespread today. Some like Ayanna Presley, a Democratic representative from Massachusetts, has said that I don't want any black politicians who are not a black voice. I don't want any brown politicians who are not a brown voice. I don't want any queer politicians who are not a queer voice. But as Bayard Rustin points out, the idea of a monolithic black community is the invention of, as he says, whites and of certain people within the black community who want to aggrandize their own power. In fact, the political views of African-Americans are hugely divergent. They range away from Ayanna Presley to much more moderate Democrats like Jim Clyburn to even some black conservatives. And so it is unclear what it means to speak for the group. In practice, most people simply will not 
be sufficiently motivated by social justice to defer their own opinions in this kind of way. And the ones who claim to do so will merely appoint people whom they already agree as the spokespeople for those viewpoints. It devolves into a form of argument by authority. And so here is a much better alternative. It is based on the recognition that, yes, of course, there are experiences of your fellow citizens that you may not naturally share. And therefore, you have to listen to them. You have to engage with them in an open mind. That's one of the responsibilities of citizenship in a diverse democracy. But after that, you, of course, have to assess their political claims like you do those of anybody else. And hopefully, we will be able to build a more genuine, a deeper form of political solidarity, which isn't based on the patronizing idea But I can't even understand you because of the intersection of identities you stand in, but I'm going to uh, defer to you because of your superior victimhood. But rather, but we recognize together that something in our society is unjust and that we should work together to fight against that injustice. That is a more ambitious and more realistic and more, I think, uplifting understanding of what true solidarity entails. My guest today is Tim Urban. Tim is a writer who is best known for his beloved blog, Wait But Why, which all of you should check out if you haven't. It asks big questions about life and about the world in a very distinctive style with very simple drawings that really get to the core of some important questions. Since Tim's interests are very broad, we talked about a broad range of questions about how to come to understand a big field of knowledge and be able to summarize it incisively, about how to beat our tendency towards procrastination, what kind of considerations we should have in mind as we choose a career or as we choose a romantic partner, how to think about whether or not all the technological developments of this moment, like artificial intelligence, really make this moment special, or whether we're subject to chronocentricity, the temptation to think that something special is happening in our time that humans have often had. And finally, we are talking about his new book called What's Our Problem? A self-help book for societies, in which Tim tries to understand some of the ways in which American society has become troubled and polarized, some of the reasons why liberal democracies are now under peril and what to do about that. Tim Urban, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I really look forward to this conversation. I feel like it's it's a strange conversation because about a third of the audience will be super fans of Wait By Why and your blog and your new book and your writing. I mean, two-thirds probably haven't seen it and so don't quite have a sense of the style and approach to it. You have a way of really thinking through in a very simple and straightforward but deep and illuminating way these big topics, many of which we'll cover in the conversation today. Why do people procrastinate? How to choose a career? How to choose a life partner? How to think about the Fermi paradox or AI or the state of our current society. Before we dive into a lot of these topics, explain to me your method. How, when you try to think of one of those bigger, fornier issues, how do you think about 
understanding it, coming up with your point of view, breaking it down, illustrating it in such a way that it really speaks to this massive audience that you've built up. Yeah, there's basically like two phases. Like the first is I have to build up my own understanding and then I have to figure out how to explain what I learned. So it's kind of like input and then, and then output. I'm always kind of iterating on both processes, but like the building up my own understanding, I start with like brute force. I'll just like read a ton and I don't need to even evaluate the sources that much when I'm doing this phase. I'll just read Wikipedia. I'll read articles that come up. If I keep hearing about a book, so I'll buy the book and skim through some of the chapters. If I really like it, I'll read the whole book, you know, depending on how deep I'm going, I'll start reading actual books. And what happens as I do this is the topic starts to clarify in my head, just the topic itself, like what are the areas of understanding to even learn? What do I keep hearing again and again? That, okay, so this isn't just some, you know, one random author's pet theory. This seems to be a very widespread theory. Okay. And this, this weird explanation that I, I don't, I'm not sure is right or it's right, but I never heard it before. Oh, I'm hearing that again and again. I guess I just totally missed that in my life. And, I, and this clearly is one. So, you know, you start to just orient. It takes a while. And early on, it can feel very upsetting and kind of daunting. And like, I, don't, I can't do this topic. What am I doing? If you just keep going with that, before you know it, you start to just be like, okay, I'm starting to really get this. Now you can say, okay, where are the holes in my understanding? And you actually know that now because you're oriented to the whole topic. So you can see where it's like, I really don't understand this part of it very well. And I keep hearing about it. So now you can zoom in. Plus you've heard also names come up. So you start to understand who are the really credible people. What are the books that everyone keeps referring to? Okay. So now you actually go in again, if I'm going to write a one week blog post, I might not go that deep, but if I'm going to write a much longer thing or a book, book chapter or longer post, I'll go and actually, you know, read a bunch of books, a few. And now I say, okay, I understand the topic. And now I'm prepared to start going into phase two and being like, okay, how do I want to explain this? Most of what I learned will not make it into whatever I write, just inevitably. And my goal is to like, if you can be a one through 10 expert, one, you know, nothing and 10, you're the world's leading expert. I don't mess with the eight, nine and tens. That's years of work that I'm not going to put in. I want to get myself to a five or six. But if I want to teach it at a, at a five, I want to get to at least a six myself. The way I know where I want to be knowledge-wise is I could write something and then the people who read it do a Q&A with me. And the Q&A goes to all kinds of other things. And I go into much more depth in the Q&A than I did there because I have a whole deeper level of understanding and a, and a wider level of understanding. You never want to be right at the edge. Uh, that's not a good feeling. And you're going to miss some stuff inevitably because right at the edge of where you know, you're wrong about some of the stuff you think you know or you, you think you'd understand it better than you do. Then it's the challenge of outlining, you know, what is the story here? What do I want to filter into this? And how can I explain it? to someone in a way where they can learn it faster than I just learned it. And the most interesting moments that dopamine hits for me as I learn, how can I get those in here so that the reader can really get the best of what I just did and be themselves feel oriented. So then I'll outline and then I'll write. And then inevitably as I write, I have to go and continue to do research. So I'll write and either I'll just forget, I'll be rusty on some of the stuff I learned a few days ago or a week or two ago. Or there's just now, I, now that I'm actually writing this, I realize like there's still little areas that I need to fill in. So then the writing process goes back and forth with, with research. And that's the extensive version of what I would write. If I'm writing a short post about procrastination or something about relationships or about society or about that doesn't require nearly as much research. That's just, that's me thinking, what do I think about this from my observations on life? And that's going to be a much quicker process than if I'm writing about cryonics or brain computer interfaces or something where I'm like, I need to understand this entire industry and the history of it and how it all works technically. 
One quick follow-up on this. In the back of my mind is the moment that a lot of PhD students go through in the United States. You take courses for the first couple of years, and those are kind of straightforward, right? You're told by a professor what to read, and you might do a little bit of research for the seminar paper you write at the end, but it's sort of an assisted process. And then you have a great freedom of a third year of a PhD program, and you're really trying to figure out your topic. And a lot of people do something that sounds quite similar to what you said you start off with, which is you sort of have an inkling of what your topic might be, but you're probably not quite clear what the actual topic is. And you go and read as much as you can on the topic. But the failure mode here, which I've seen in myself and many of my colleagues during the PhD and many people who I've given advice to since then, is it becomes an endless process because you can always read one more book. You can always chase down one more rabbit hole. And then, you know, you spend three or four years in that phase of a PhD and suddenly you're at G5 or G6 in the sixth year of your PhD and you still don't really know what your topic is and you still don't really have an argument and you certainly don't have, for you have a lot of knowledge, perhaps the more knowledge than you end up with because you spend more time, but less clarity, less ability to actually explain this. So I guess, how do you avoid that pitfall, which I see so commonly in people who end up doing serious research? No, this is a big problem for me too. For the first few years I was writing blog posts, I had the limitation of, you know, I'm supposed to finish, I'm supposed to write something each week. So that's just a giant limitation. When that's there, you just do a lot of a lot of self-regulating. You just think, oh, I don't have time to read books right now. I need to do what I can from the articles I've read, or maybe I'm going to extend this and, I, and maybe this is going to be a little bit longer, but I, I'm still under the gun. So I can read these two books and then I just got to skim two more. I certainly can't keep reading books. I need to move. And your perfectionism which is one force here. And it's not always a bad force. That's the force that creates excellence a lot. It's the force that pushes you to really do something good. It's also the force that if it pushes you too far, it makes your, it makes it take forever. And, and like you said, it actually can make the work worse, right? There's some sweet spot that perfectionism doesn't understand, right? It's just going to keep going in, in its direction. So there has to be some counterforce. Some people are just very disciplined. Most people, creative people, and a lot of PhDs are creative people. You know, they're trying to create new knowledge, they don't have that force, that, that discipline so much. And that perfectionism is going to overpower or whatever. There has to be some kind of hard limitation. So I had that in, you know, again, in the blog posting days. And it also helped that I knew that everyone who's reading my post knew I took a week on this. So I knew that the expectations, I didn't have to prove anything more than, you know, the, what I can do in a week. Then I got into a long post, which turned into a post series, which then became a book. I spent six years on this, and this was a classic example. Everything you just said is what happened to me in that it was a book about society and politics and why we, there's no end. The, the amount of fields that are relevant for that, just whole fields. And then I would be reading one thing, I don't know, about psychology, and I'd come across a new book on popularity and the psychology behind popularity. So now I go start reading that book and I realize there's so much to go into there and with status and how that relates to tribalism. And then I'd go into the, or, you know, the origins of tribalism and then how that relates to politics. And then I'd get to specific political issues. And then you want to talk about the political history. And now suddenly you're in Mao's China and what's going on there. And I, it's crazy. So I had this exact problem and I think I was an amateur and I didn't quite understand the pitfall because I hadn't had no limitation yet. And it took a long time. And I did find myself saying, I'm not even sure what is the core topic here anymore. And there's too many metaphors and too many theories. And I had to do so much cutting and so much paring down. And then I wrote it and it was still way too long. And I had to do more cutting and more paring down. And I had to rewrite the whole thing. Nightmare. So I now I'm doing another book. And I learned from this. And I was like, okay, I have to do a hardcore system here. This is going to be 
10 chapters, no more than 100,000 words. That means each chapter has to be like five to 15,000 words. And it's a very broad book. So each chapter, I'm like, it cannot get into very much here. You have to pick and choose. So, and then I have a lot of time deadline external systems I've built now with other people involved and large sums of money and people looking at my screen on screen share and lots of things where I've like, okay, I think I've learned a lot from this first book and I'm doing that. But I can imagine a PhD student, this is the first time people in many cases have done a project this big. And and it's even harder in, for them in some ways because I'm trying to synthesize existing knowledge mostly and maybe come up with a new way to frame it. But PhD students are trying to add to knowledge. They're trying to become a source that someone like me would read. That's that's harder. I mean, you need to get to the primary sources and figure out something new. So I feel for them. Yeah, so I think they are obviously very different enterprises. But one piece of advice that I think does come out of what you were saying, but I would also have if any PhD students are listening, sorry guys, it gets better after grad school, is people tend to think too much about the project as a dissertation and too little as a book. Obviously, there are now PhDs that are writing free papers and so on. That's a different set of problems. But if you're writing the kind of dissertation, which will eventually turn into a book, think of it as early as possible as a book. And that then comes with a kind of constraints that Tim is talking about. And a book is a scary thing, but it's normally eight to 10 chapters or something like that. And each of those chapters is a manageable project, but it's more akin to what people have done before. So the divide and conquer approach, I think is really important. So much better to think of it as eight or 10 articles I have to write than a book. You know, it's like, and I'm gonna work on my book. No, I'm gonna work on um, article number four. That's what I'm doing this month. Article number four, big deal, it's an article. So let's talk about some of the posts and articles that I particularly remember and wait by why I've been following the blog for a long time. And so I went back over the website in preparation for this conversation, but a lot of what I'm talking about is stuff that just stuck in my mind from when I read it two years ago or five years ago, or seven years ago. And since we've been talking about graduate students, the natural place to start is procrastination. What's your two minute insight about the structure of procrastination and what perhaps we can do to deal with it a little bit better? What I've done in articles and talks is like, I tell my own story and everyone's procrastination story means opening up their head and saying, who's in there? What's happening? And mine is that I have an instant gratification monkey in my head who wants to do maximize the ease and pleasure of the current moment at all times, does not understand the future or the past. And I have a rational decision maker who wants to do what makes sense. So sometimes that's fun, sometimes it's not, but just it, it makes sense given the obvious schedule and things I have to do and the, my, my long-term plans. And those are different parts of the brain. You know, I mean, the one is much more ancient and doesn't understand long-term plans because it wasn't evolved in a time when we had civilization when you needed to make long-term plans and have long-term projects. The other part of your brain can think in real time and actually does get the world we live in. So there's this conflict and for a procrastinator, the monkey wins again and again in that moment. You know, there's a lot of delusion that that tomorrow will be better, but then the monkey wins again. And then comes the deadline, the scary freak out moment. And that's when the third character, the panic monster rushes in the room. And that's the one thing that scares the monkey away. When it's, you know, panic monster comes screaming in the room, the monkey runs away. And now the rational decision maker can frantically do a B minus job on the thing that I'm supposed to be doing to get it in by the deadline. And it's, it's, it's a very miserable situation. And just to say, I just find these three characters, I mean, they're simple and straightforward. And there's a kind of tripartite structure of the soul, which, you know, in some ways goes back to Plato or whatever. But it's just so evocative and so simple as a way of understanding yourself and thinking about it. Well, procrastination is a Roman word. I mean, it's a Latin word. It it means to put off till tomorrow. 
That's what it means in Latin, which means that Julius Caesar was procrastinating. I mean, they were all people procrastinating that because this is the human condition. It's like a mismatch between the tool in our head, which was wired for a certain kind of tribal environment where you had to hunt and gather, and the world we live in, which is an advanced civilization. That, that's what this is. People aren't being lazy or it's just a, that we are out of our home habitat. And so I think that those characters, I think, apply to a lot of people. Now, some people have a different problem. So some people, they're better at rational decision maker overpowering the monkey, right? So they don't have as big a problem. They have resistance, but they can over defeat it. Some people are worse than me in that they have the same monkey problem, but now the panic monster comes in and the monkey's still not scared. And the monkey still doesn't do it. So even when they're panicked, they will fail at their goal. And that's really bad. So there's different balances of power, but the characters I think are pretty common. But the big question is what's the underlying psychology? What's really going on? And this is where I think you can't have a one-size-fits-all solution. That's why these articles, how to beat procrastination or why we procrastinate. I don't think that's a one. I think that's saying, why do people overeat? And that is people who have a struggle with their diet there's so many emotional and psychological and historical issues that lead to someone to do that. And yes, yeah, some of them, there are some patterns, but I think that is something where every person needs to kind of think hard and, and trial and error experiment with their own, you know, see what might work for themselves. For me, I've come up with some certain things. Like I think that one of my problems is that if you think of the rational decision maker as the parent and the monkey as the child in the head, I realized that it wasn't just that this bad kid, right? It's that I wasn't being a very good parent. And that actually, this monkey lives by reward and punishment. And if you say, look, we're going to work really hard till 6 p.m. or 3 p.m. or whatever it is, and then we're going to do something fun, really fun. You're going to get a reward. You're going to get your dopamine hit. And you can start to train the monkey on that. There'll be a lot less resistance earlier in the day. But I found that it was this battle all day. I wasn't getting enough done. And if I ever did, I always said, well, I'm so behind now. I need to keep working. I never gave the monkey actually fun. I wasn't having any fun. And fun actually lowers resistance. It recharges the system for me. So this is something I've learned. And I talk about this, you know, when I do talks on this, I'll go through some things that have worked for me, but I always encourage people. I'm like, experiment. The monkey's actually not that smart. You can outsmart it, but you have to get creative and try new things. You can't keep banging your head against the wall with the same failed thing and be delusional that it will somehow work tomorrow. You know, there's a small element of what you said, but I found really interesting, which is that once you're being productive, the temptation is to just stay with it until you exhaust it. And that can be a failure mode. There's all of these articles about how writers write, and a lot of writers have a daily goal of a thousand words or something like that. Some have 500, and some have 1,500, and it depends in part on the kind of stuff that they're writing, right? And I think that's good. It's a daily habit that you're building. But one interesting difference is that some writers say, look, I want to have at least a thousand words. I mean, if I have a productive day, I might write 2,000 words, 3,000 words on that day, right? But others say, I forget who it was, perhaps Hemingway, some famous writer said, no, 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 no. I write exactly 1,000 words a day. And if I'm really in the swing of things and I'm inspired and I really feel like I could write 3,000 words today, I stop at 1,000 words. Why? Because if you write until you're exhausted or you write until your creative impetus is spent, you come in the next day and you're like, okay, what do I do now? I need to like build up the momentum. I need to, what's the first sentence going to be? I'm in front of this kind of new problem. If you cut yourself off in the middle, then you come back the next day excited. Like, okay, fine, I get to finish this thing where I felt like I had the energy and I kind of know how this part of the story or article or whatever it is that you're writing ends. And so you come in with a very different kind of fresh energy. So I feel in a weird way what you're saying is in conversation with that. 
we all grow up with this. There's school. Gotta suck it up. You gotta do school. Bell, 3 p.m. free. Freedom, right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, TGIF, freedom, right? Summer vacation, right? This is this, this is mini, you know, larger and macro, same kind of structure. You have to do this, but then you're free. And now imagine they said, oh, if you're really flowing, if you're doing well at school that day, you're just going to keep going. We're going to go till 7 or 8 or 9 p.m. Or if you're having a good week and you're really doing well, and you have Thursday, Friday, we're going to go, we're going to come back to school Saturday. It would screw up all the psychology. And so that's what Hemingway or whoever it is, is talking about. I totally agree with that. I think this is something that I, you know, I always thought I did school. I did that and I hated it and I hated that structure and I hated the Monday through Friday thing. And I thought, you know, I don't do that now. I work my own hours and I have a lot more freedom than, and whatever. But actually I come back to that and think there's some wisdom to the yin yang. I work, play, work, play kind of, it's not really up to you. It's this bigger thing that you're just, you just got to do your thing. And I think there's something about I got to get to the thousand word mark and that's the bell and I'm free. And the monkey can understand that and can get used to that and can kind of fall into that rhythm. If you keep working and it is hard because when you're in a flow, that is magical. And you're thinking, I could, I could do so much more right now, but the cost, okay, yes, there is something you're going to lose by stopping, but you're going to gain a ton. So I think there's something about treating it like the bell at 3 p.m. or fr- TGIF when you finish your work. And, um, and likewise, so I'm now doing 800 words a day as my magic number and I'm also doing weekends off, which is brand new for me. So I was going to ask you, so you became a parent recently, right? And and one thing that strikes me is that, you know, I'm not a parent. And so in some ways I have endless time. I mean, I have a lot of obligations and, and responsibilities and things that I'm doing, but I have quite a lot of work time available to me. And so I do end up procrastinating a good amount just because time doesn't feel as precious as a resource as I know it does to many of my friends who now have young kids. And I'm always struck, I always wondered about how much productivity does or would decline when you become a parent. Because obviously the amount of time you have available to devote to work is much, much lower. But on the other hand, perhaps it does reinforce this kind of structure. We're like, man, I have 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. And in these hours, I want to get all this stuff done. I got to get all this stuff done. It's wonderful to see your kids. It's also a lot of work. I don't know that you're exactly keeping the instant gratification monkey happy. Perhaps this is more of a panic monster that's telling you after five, you're not going to be able to do anything. But I guess how has that in your life transformed now that you have a young child? Do you feel like you get less done or do you feel like actually you just use those hours more productively than you would have done in the past? Yes, yeah, funny. Like, so I was this exact situation where I had no limitations. I often would not really even get started on the work till the afternoon because I just knew I could work till dinner. I could work after dinner. I could work late at night. I could work Saturday. And this is very new. I have a six-month-old, so it's very new. So if one thing I, you learn is that, and I think most parents would probably agree with this, is that it's not even like, oh, I should spend. You want to spend time with them. You really don't want to not see them. It's really upsetting to not see them. Uh, but I also need to get my work done. So like, you know, the arrangement that I have going right now is like, I'll, I'll do mornings a lot of the days. The first thing, you know, seven, which again, I'm not used to being up then. And then 6 p.m., I'll do the night. So I'm I'm on at six, which is like a good quality hour. And then weekends, I'm free to spend a lot of time. And so that's 6 p.m. thing. It takes some adjustment because for a while, I kept doing my normal thing. I get to the computer at, I don't know, 9 or 10 a.m. And I had this great feeling. It's a very happy moment when I think, I have the whole day ahead of me. Look, it's the internet. Oh, my texts. Oh, look, it's Twitter, right? It's, oh, this is uh, ESPN.com. This is, let's let's dig in, right? The fun land. And of course, the, the delusion is, I'm just doing this for 10, 15 minutes, and then we're going to get started. But of course... 
that goes on and on and on and on. And I would actually do that. And then it would suddenly be four and I would think, oh my God, I have to actually stop in two hours. Like, no joke, I really have to stop in two. And I would be so upset that night thinking I didn't get anything done. And it is a learning process and adjustment, but I found myself having a much more urgency early now and actually seeing that looming deadline, which is very healthy feeling. I'm like, ah, oh, this feels great actually to have to work early on. And so this is a little, you know, almost obvious. I think Pe people have probably heard people say this before. It has made me more productive. And the reason is, I used to, I worked on weekends and I worked at nights a lot. So you think, okay, this guy is working so many hours. If I actually time logged my hours, the actual time when I'm deep focused, working really hard, you know, very focused, it was probably 20 hours a week max. If you actually looked, and I bet some of those weeks were like eight or 10 hours, some really failure weeks or even five or six hours, right? I mean, if you really got into it, if I had some of these really procrastinating weeks, so the time was never the problem. We always say we're so short on time, but I think we're short on discipline. Like the, the time was not my problem. I had the time and I still have that time. So the point is that, you know, whatever it is, 10 to six, nine to six, Monday through Friday is more than enough time to do everything I want to do in life if I'm really being productive. That's still a big if, but it was inspiring because I was like, okay, this baby does not have to change anything about my actual productivity if I can develop better habits. And so far with my 800 words a day thing, and, and it's early, but it's been good. I've actually made more progress through this next book with a baby than I ever did in this same amount of time on the last book without a baby. So now we've solved listeners' problem of procrastination. Just have a baby and be disciplined, <laughs> uh, something like that. Perfect. So next question, how do you choose a career? One thing I would say is imagine someone wants to, they're single and they would like to be married. And so they sit inside and they think about what person they want to marry. And that's what they do. They just sit there and they make spreadsheets and they research and they, and they come up with you know a whole rubric and they try to sit there and figure out how do I want to be when I meet this person so that I can win them over and who is this person? They just do that. I think we'd all agree that's probably not the way you're going to find your life partner sitting alone inside thinking about it and planning for it and making decisions. You got to just go on dates, right? We don't know ourselves that well. We don't know other people that we, we don't know what we like. We're not that good at dating. We're not going to present our best selves and dates until we start to get better at this and get more confident. I would just tell someone, just go on dates. Tell your friends you want to be set up with people. Go on the apps and meet people. Go out to bars and approach people in coffee shops if you're that bold. And just get a first date. Go on as many first dates as you can and then see what happens. And, and try to be open-minded. And don't judge too hard on the first date. Because they might be being their best self either, right? Whatever. So I would say that. So I would say the same thing about a career, right? And we, we do a lot of like people in college toil over what, you know, tyranny of choice. There's so much I could do. What do I want to do? Do I want to be CEO of Apple or do I want to be an artist, uh, a US senator? And it's like, well, would I ever make you happy? Yeah. Or do I want to go and like travel for my first five years after college and then do, or do I want to start really early, start in college? You know, there's endless nightmare choices and each one has some pros and cons, right? There's nothing obvious here. Look, some people do know. I have a friend who, when he was 20, said, I'm going to be a doctor. And he said, I know I wake up in the morning of that career and that's what my, so it's in my family. We've opened up and I'm going to do that. I said, that's, that's awesome for that person. But most of us aren't like that. It's just in today's world, you know, it's hard. There's so many opportunities. There's so many different ways you can go. You could just 
totally do your own rogue thing, business, art, or you can work for small companies, you can work for big companies, you can team up with friends and start something, you can go to different, where are you gonna live, what city are you gonna be in, what industry? So I think that, first of all, just like meeting a life partner, you're not gonna meet every single person on earth and be able to pick the best one for you, right? You're inevitably, whoever you end up with, there's gonna be 20 people out there who would have been better match for you, right? It's just reality. And you have to not be a perfectionist. You have to say, that's okay. I assume you tell your wife that every night. Yeah, 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 exactly. She's listening right now. And so you can't think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the perfect career for myself. And I'm gonna need to try everything to see what it is. You just have to go and say, I'm gonna end up inevitably trying five or 10 things, maybe two or four things. And I'm gonna find something that works really well for me. And it's not your parents' generation where you pick something at 22 and that's what you do till you're 65. You have 50 years of career and most people will try and do many different things. So I like to think of it as, this is I think a Steve Jobs a metaphor where it's connect the dots. And you can't connect them forwards, there's no way. When you end up in some career, it's all actually because I moved to the city and I met this person and I only did that because I, I had this other job. You can't connect them forwards, but you, you can look backwards and see the path you led on. And all your job is, is to pick a good next dot. And that doesn't have to be a perfect next dot. You don't have to know where it's leading. Maybe in seven dots later, in 2040, you realize that why this dot was actually something useful. Maybe you learned that you don't like it and that was useful. Don't worry too much about it. I would say, think about your career is a bunch of dots. You're gonna go from this to this to this and it's gonna change. Let 10 years from now you worry about what's happening 10 years from now. For the rest of the future years, your job is to set them up with a good first dot here or a good second dot. And, and what makes a good dot? Lots of things. It can be fun. Fun is worthwhile. It can be something where you're gonna learn a lot. You're gonna learn about a lot about yourself, about the world. You're gonna learn a skill. Maybe it's gonna help with your network. You're gonna meet a lot of people that might be useful. So again, it's a little bit like a book, right? Instead of thinking, I'm gonna work on my book, think I'm working on my chapter four, it's a little article. Same thing, what's a good next dot? And if I'm gonna get something valuable out of it, it's a good dot. And now do it, like dating. Get out there and do it, try this. If it's not working for you after a couple years, Try that. Go. If you're young, you know, try internships, try building, you know, little things online. If you might want to be a writer, start a blog, start writing articles. Even if it's just anonymous at first, just start making stuff online. You know, that's kind of a various things I would say to someone who's, who's struggling with the tyranny of choice. And some of the important stuff in that is that first of all, to have a successful career, it's really helpful if it's something you enjoy, right? No matter how smart you are, no matter how hardworking you are, no matter how good you are at beating your own tendency towards procrastination. If you go into a lucrative field, but you just don't like it, you're never going to be truly excellent at it. Whereas if you you know, find a niche that is hard and competitive, but you really love it and you actually excel at it, you're more likely to do well in the end. And it's hard to know what that is until you try it, right? You can sit at home and think you would love to be a musician and actually start being in the music industry and start playing gigs and so on. You start to realize you hate that world and you're really unhappy in it. And in that case, that's not what you should do. But it's also complicated because you might like something in theory, but actually doing it is hard and you don't like it. And because you're not good at it yet, and after five years, you start to be really good and now you like it. So you have to also judge what the dislike really is. Is it that you're not good yet, but you have potential? Or is it that it's just not resonating with you? Even if, even if you got to that next level, you don't think it would be fun. And you have to be able to have realistic understanding of your own talents, which is a very hard thing to do. I once went to a talk by a famous writer, I won't, I won't say who it is, but he said the thing, oh, you know, my first 
two manuscripts were rejected by all of his publishers and I was about to give up. But eventually I was discovered and had a very, very successful career. Lots of TV shows based on his books and so on. And he said, in the end, it's just, do you need to do it? Do you feel like you must do it? If you feel like you must do it, you should be a writer. And if not, then not. And I thought that was terrible advice because actually there are some people who love writing, but who could perfectly happily have had different careers, could perfectly happily have ended up as doctors and had good lives. And there's other people who truly just love writing and that's the only thing they feel in their mind because they've sort of constructed their own identity in that way. But the only thing that's going to give them satisfaction in life is writing. And this is not good. They're never going to get discovered. They're never going to make a successful living as a writer or even have a kind of recognition that they crave of other people reading the work and so on. So, of course, you need to be passionate about what you do. That is, I think, incredibly helpful, even in a purely instrumental basis. But that kind of romanticized idea, I think, is just really, really dangerous. But I wanted to point out something else, which is you made this comparison between choosing your career and finding your life partner. And I think what's similar here is this sort of sense of this momentous choice and it's a really important choice and we don't have enough guidance as to how to do it socially and people get in their heads about it and they get confused, right? But what's a little bit different is that the kind of solution you just offered to the first problem doesn't seem to be available in the second problem exactly, right? Which is to say that if you choose a career, if you've been in the career for, for 10 or 15 years, you can actually change careers. And there's ways bit by bit to change your career. Perhaps it requires quitting a job in a dramatic fashion and doing something completely different. Or perhaps it means sort of little sidesteps and, you know, over a period of 10 years, you're suddenly in a different kind of career without there ever having been a sort of huge break and crisis in the middle. But obviously that isn't exactly available as a strategy with a life partner. It's available early on when you're just going out on dates and discovering yourself and dating around a little bit. But once you've chosen a life partner, I think that that choice feels harder because you can't then drift into a different partner. Obviously, you evolve and change and so on, but that's not quite the same. Some people have a different philosophy, you know, and they're not especially, either they're not monogamous or they are, but they don't believe in marriage and they don't intend to necessarily be in something forever. So I, I think for some people it can be like that, but I think for me, and it sounds like you, and for most people in our society, maybe because it's kind of hardwired into us or maybe because that's what our culture has trained us on, we do plan to date until we meet the one and then get married and stay married forever. I think people who don't believe in that might like say, oh, you're just being so rigid. That's not what humans are meant to do. On the other hand, like, I think there is something hardwired in us that just is hardwired for monogamy. And I think can be very happy with that. Very briefly, Tim, whatever the cause of it is, it's a thing that's hard to overcome, I think. And my example of that is that when I was growing up in Germany, a lot of my parents' generation were people who were part of the student movement in the 60s. And so they thought that marriage was this bourgeois institution of property that must be opposed and overcome. And, you know, many of them, when they were young, probably had relatively by the standards of the time, especially sexually libertine kind of lifestyles and experiences. But eventually they got to met somebody and they fell for them. And they ended up in these really long-term monogamous partnerships, but they could not admit to themselves that they had fallen into the bourgeois trap. And so they used this term, and I really have memories of acquaintances and family friends introducing the partners as my Lebensabschnittsgefährte, which must be the least romantic term I have ever heard. It translates at life segment partner. So they were trying to emphasize, look, this is the woman I'm currently dating monogamously, but like, she's not my wife. I mean, that would be terrible. But of course, these Lebensabschnittsgefährte were together from when we were 30 until we were 87, you know? 
I mean, look, maybe that helps them not freak out because it, it is, if you think of it as your life partner, it is by far the biggest decision of your life. And it's crazy. I mean, it's a lot for all of us to kind of deal with here. And I feel for people that are struggling with this because it is, it's tough. It's a hard, you know, if you're a perfectionist and oh my God, you know, and that there's always maybe someone out there better for you. And is this, and it's never, no, no relationship is perfect. So you're always looking at the things that are wrong. And I could, the next person I would be with, maybe none of these things would be wrong. You know, and that might be true, but maybe other things wouldn't be right. And it's just, what I would say is there are ways when the career and the relationship thing are similar. And I, one of the tools I did for the career decision is I drew something I called a yearning octopus. I would encourage you to Google images yearning octopus because I think it's a a useful drawing. And basically I I say there's five tentacles, so it's a pentapus. And each one is a different thing about careers that people go for. So one is personal, you know, achieving your potential, self-esteem and identity. And another one is lifestyle and it's, you know, freedom and money and flexibility. And another one is practical, you know, you just need to actually pay the, your debt and have food right now and security. Moral, you know, are you, are, you cha- are you helping people? Are you changing the world for the better? And then, you know, social. What do other people think? Are you admired? Do you, does it give you status, right? These are totally different things. And it's not that any of those are more worthy than the other. It all depends. But I think it's worth thinking about, am I just totally driven by the personal tentacle and I'm totally ignoring the others or, or whatever? Or is it actually all I care about is the social one? And actually all I'm, I'm way too driven by what other people think. And I want to seem admirable. And that's actually, I'm giving, sacrificing all the things I care about or what other people think. It's worth looking at that. And I would say for relationships, it's something similar, which is that if there's different things you might want in a relationship, there's the sex life, there's lifestyle, doing stuff together, there's doing stuff out in the world together. There's also how it is when you're on your couch alone watching TV. There's life philosophy and, you know, there's just general kind of compatibility. There's how you are socially. Do you like the same people? Do you hang out with the same friends? When you're with people, do you like them more or less than when you're alone? And how do you fight? And how do you communicate? And are you on a trajectory that's getting better? Or was the honeymoon phase a big part of why you liked each other? And once those chemicals are gone, there's something lacking. These are lots of different things going on, right? So I think it is the same thing. It's worth kind of making your own kind of octopus. It was just different arenas of what matters and assessing. And one thing I would look for, this is like a red flag. And I, I've done this myself with both career and with relationships is... There's a story you're always trying to tell yourself about this. And the goal is that the story is a good story. You're very proud of the story. You feel good about it. But I can be good at talking myself into things, right? I can be good at convincing people. I can be good at explaining things to others. I can also be good at kind of mind-fucking myself. And it's worth thinking about how much are you really talking yourself into this career? Like, there's a story that now you're telling about why actually you don't want that thing you thought you wanted and you really want this anyway. Maybe that's true, or maybe you are really, really trying to convince yourself of something. And same thing can go for the relationship. It's just so deeply inconvenient to break up with this person. And oh my God, it's going to be awful. And I just don't want to be alone. And what if I don't find someone? So I'm going to just make up this story about why it's actually what exactly what I want. And maybe it is, but maybe it's not. And I think it's worth like just noting, are you trying really hard to talk yourself into this? Like maybe a little too hard where I think that's worth thinking about. And it's worth thinking about all of these factors. And you're not going to satisfy all the tentacles on the octopus, either with career or with relationship, but at least having a sense of what you're looking for. Now, one thing I think, you know, you mentioned that in some ways it's harder with a relationship because you can't just choose the next dot. But one thing I find is that getting engaged, this is why I do believe in marriage for a lot of people. And definitely for myself, getting engaged just made everything simple. That whole other voice, all those discussions in my head about whether 
just went away for me. Maybe not for everyone, but this idea that it was done, nothing else for me to think about. This now person might as well be a member of my immediate family. They're just there forever now. It was just simple. And the career, actually, you don't have that. You always could make a change. So I think maybe there's something beneficial there too. Yeah, certainly part of marriage is a mechanism to make it harder to reduce choices. Yeah, divorce is intentionally messy and difficult. So it needs to be a willful blindness at a certain kind of point, because of course, there's always going to be somebody you meet who seems fascinating and interesting and it's fresh and, and the temptation is to pursue that. And you need some kind of mechanism to make sure not to do that, not for artificial social reasons, but because if every time that you meet somebody who you're intrigued by, you sort of run after that person and abandon whatever relationship you're in, you're just going to have a sort of series of perhaps interesting, but probably ultimately unsatisfying relationships for the rest of your life. And some people might want that as a life model and that's perfectly fine. But for most people, that's not, in fact, their goal, and, and they wouldn't be happier in that kind of way. You also have to remember that when you meet new people, you're seeing their best sides, right? We all have, we all have let's say, 10 sides, right? And you're seeing their three best, because that's what they're going to show you. And you're seeing your partner's full 10, including their three worst. And so it's so easy to be like, oh, my partner makes me, blah, 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 blah. but this person just, blah. and it's like, you have to remind yourself that you're seeing number one, two, and three for them only. There's so much other stuff that I'd love to talk about, but I want to get to two big topics for the second half of the conversation. One is AI, and then I really want to talk about your view of our current society and how to think about this broader political moment. There's a sort of critique of what somebody's called chronocentricity, right? This idea that we always think our moment is special, that the things and the trends and the changes that are going on in our time somehow are the most fundamental changes in history of humanity. They're going to be the thing that completely transform stuff. And so it's easy to be dismissive of the importance of technological developments in your time. Famously, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, there's always been this fear, for example, that new machines would somehow cause mass unemployment, right? because they would replace the kind of jobs we have at the moment, people would no longer have jobs. And it was always hard to imagine the kind of jobs that people would do instead, the kind of demand for new jobs that would create. And so from one perspective, it's easy to think about something like AI and say, well, look, this seems like a tremendous technology. But isn't it? Isn't this just our tendency to somehow hype up the change that's happening in our time? Is this really going to be a bigger transformation of human life than the book press was? Perhaps everybody will be a yoga teacher and we just don't want an AI yoga teacher. And so we're still going to have these jobs. On the other hand, it does seem like it's different, right? I mean, a general artificial intelligence would be able to replace jobs across a huge swath of areas, for example, in the kind of way in which more narrow artificial intelligence that just mechanized or automated a particular kind of task was not. All through this time, humans were the most intelligent creatures on Earth. It is at least imaginable and perhaps likely that within a relatively short span of time, we will no longer be. So how do we reconcile these conflicting instincts about how to make sense of the AI revolution that's taking place all around us. I think the hard thing is that both stories will prove true in different ways. So in some ways, this will repeat patterns of the past. People thinking that certain things are the end of days that turned out to be just the next version of something that's happened many times. People thinking that all the jobs are just going to disappear without thinking about all the new jobs that will appear and all the ways that AI will actually collaborate with humans as opposed to take their jobs and think that, you know, something is going to change absolutely everything in a way that it's actually, it only didn't change that much in certain areas, right? So there's going to be some of that for sure. 
because we do have the tendency to overrate change. That said, this will also almost certainly be, there'll be an element of unprecedented change. This will be different than all the other times in history. And that's not naive to say that, because a lot of people have thought that. But, you know, you can do these litmus tests by just zooming out on the story here. And it becomes very clear when you zoom out that, like, this is an extremely special time. You're not naive to think we're special. We are special here. And the reason is, the one little metaphor I use is thousand-page book. If all of human history were written as a thousand-page book, 250,000 years or so of human history. So that means each page is 250 years, right? Four pages is a millennium. If you look at that book, the first 950 pages of that book, pre-agricultural revolution is just hunter-gatherers. So 95% of the book, nothing really happens. All the actions in the last 5%, but even within there, from 10,000 BC to, I don't know, 1,000 BC, not that mean, yes, the empire, you know, as cities start and agriculture and giant advances writing. So big things happen, but it happens very slowly. And things start to speed up and you get to page 990. So now you're 99% of the way through the book. You're at AD. You know, you're at Herodotus and Aristotle and Jesus and Julius Caesar. That, that we're talking the early 990s. So we're in the, in the last percent of the book when those people are doing their thing. And then the reason I like the thousand page book is it gets to just the last page. Just the last page goes back to right before the Industrial Revolution, you know, right before the U.S. starts, modern liberal democracies, you know, the early 1770s. And this page is officially different than all the others. If you look at population, for 999 pages, the human population was below a billion. On this page alone, we not just crossed the 1 billion mark, but the 8 billion mark. I mean, that's crazy. We barely used any energy for the first 999 pages. The entire fossil fuels era is this last page with everything, that all the climate change, you know, implications of it that come along with it and all the crazy energy implications and the unlimited seeming energy. Transportation was just horses and sailboats, right? And walking. And now, of course, you're going to the space station, right? We're submarines and cars and planes. Communication. Towards the very end, you had handwritten letters. Before that, you just had talking. Suddenly, we have FaceTime, right? Look at us right now in different parts of the world. Nothing about this page is normal. It is all completely magical compared to the rest. So if you're an alien reading this book, an alien anthropologist, and you're reading this book, there's no way you're thinking, yes, this is just another page. These people also think their time is special. No, you're thinking, what's about to happen to this species? As you turn the page to page 1001, you're thinking shit's going down. There's something bit, this is, they're either going to about to be a, a hyper-technological, super advanced long-term species, or they're about to kill, you know, blow themselves up in some way or another. So the people who say, you know, who roll their eyes at the doomers or the people who say we're all going to be living, you know, a thousand years, I think those people are actually being, they're not thinking hard enough. That said, it won't all be Crazy. Some stuff will turn out to just be another advance and another big advance. But like, oh, the world settled in and actually like it didn't change everything. So it's hard to know what those things are. Now, you brought up AI. AI is obviously a great candidate for being one of the crazy unprecedented things that really is not like anything else. And AI now is such a big topic. But the core concept here is that humans have been the king of the intelligence castle on planet Earth since we started. We are building something that is more intelligent than we are. Maybe, you know, arguments about AI consciousness, but think about the consciousness advantage we have over, I don't know, a mouse or a chicken. We are more aware of, of reality. We can process information in our computers better than they can. 
What does it feel like to be more conscious than we are? Whatever that entails, we might be, maybe, building something that is more, that looks at us the way we look at a chicken where they think, even if I tried to explain this thing to it, even if we tried to explain something to a chicken, there's just a limit on how aware it can be and how much it can know. This thing might be able to think in ways and do things in ways that we can't even understand, even if it tried to explain. I mean, that is so mind-boggling. And what's that going to do? That is the, that's bigger than the printing press, right? That is, that's bigger than the car, bigger than the integrated circuit. I mean, we're talking about like just a seismic, unprecedented change. So but maybe 50 years from now, oh, it turns out it was really hard to build super intelligent AI and we haven't actually quite done it yet. There's nothing more conscious than we are. That also could be true. So I think about this as having sort of two dimensions, right? One is the sort of existential dimension. And there, if we do get to, for example, a, a version of something like ChatGPT that actually rivals not just a kind of okay poet, but the best poet, right? If it actually manages to outclass us even in these quintessentially human creative endeavors, I think it's just going to be one of the great moments of human humbling. I mean, we used to think that the earth is the center of the universe, that we're made in the image of God, that we're completely different from the animal realm, and so on and so forth. And we realized that actually, no, there's a vast universe out there, and the earth is just one of the planets. We're descended from apes, who are descended from other kinds of animals. And I think to realize that actually humans don't have this special place in creativity and, and be able to understand and interpret and conceptualize the world would be on a par with that as a moment of human humbling. Then there's just the more consequential dimension of, all right, you know, would this make society better or worse? And would AI that's truly super intelligent either stay under our control in some kind of way or sort of be benevolent towards us? Or would it treat us much like we treat chickens and other kinds of animals that we think are far below our capacities, which by and large involves occasional kindness, but by and large involves unspeakable cruelty? How do we start thinking through that? Yeah, I like to think about like short term and long term here. Like the creativity example, and like taking our jobs example, and, you know, th these are short term, meaning the next, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. And those don't bother me so much, I think. So think about chess, right? It's a perfect example of human humbling. We thought, oh, a computer will never beat a human at chess. And of course it did. And then we thought a human won't beat a human at poker. Or a, a computer won't beat a human at poker and then go. And then, of course, AI crushes us at all these things now. But why is Magnus Carlsen famous? Because people still rather watch two humans play chess than two AI play chess. It's actually not very interesting. We quickly go to, if someone could do 10-digit multiplication in their head, we'd still be blown away by them, even though, of course, a calculator, a little cheap calculator can do more. So there's something where, I, I think there was something with creativity too, maybe, where we will say, yeah, of course, we'll get used to it. And we'll say, of course, AI is better than us at those things, but it's boring when AI does it. What can a human do? Man, that's so cool, right? So I think a lot of the creativity things we'll still want to hear the human written song, maybe. And maybe what it'll be is that, you know, right now even, you hear a lot of auto-tuned voices. You hear a lot of people who are using a kind of an AI drum beat with their song, and you don't really care. If there's an element of human creativity involved, and then you have a human singer, then we're okay with it. There's been some help from the AI. So I think there'll be also a lot of collaboration. That one, I would predict, settles into the, we thought it was going to be a bigger deal than it was thing, where you still have plenty of artists and you still have plenty of, different kinds of uh, human creativity. And same with our jobs. I kind of feel like there's going to be a lot of human jobs, still a lot of need for humans to supervise or to do collaboration. 
And I do think eventually there might be kind of some growing pains, a bad decade, you know, economically. But if you say don't have AI truck drivers, because then you're going to lose all these human delivery drivers and truck drivers. Well, okay. But now what you're saying is we should just, their salaries are essentially welfare and we're going to keep them working to get the welfare. And it's like, just give them the welfare and let the AI do the job. I think eventually that will click. It's going to take some big adjustment, but I do think some kind of UBI thing is going to make a ton of sense. And I don't think once we get to that world where everyone now kind of has a decent salary without doing anything and AI is doing most of the, we're not going to wish we could come back here. And it's going to seem silly. It's going to seem like the Luddites to to come to want to come back here and not have that happen because there's rubric in our head where people have to be doing the work themselves. And so now there's uh, some things in the short term that definitely scare me. The deep fakes is very scary. Can we trust video anymore? Can we trust audio anymore? There can be a big Twitter political personality. The next Ben Shapiro or one of these big provocative political characters that's very influential. And not only the influential, but you hear their podcast and then you go on CNN and you see an anchor in one square and you see them in the other square. They're doing a virtual conversation and they don't exist because the tweets are written by the AI and the voice is done by the AI and the deep fake video with a manufactured face. That's pretty scary. And that starts to be like, man, our brains are not really meant for that. You know, we are convinced by things that seem like people. So it might not need to actually be conscious to if it seems conscious, it might be able to do a lot of very serious damage to trust in our society is already kind of hanging on by a thread. And this could start to shake the foundations of like a liberal democracy. So that does scare me in the short term. The long term is when you get to like, first of all, we have an if we will get there. I I don't think we know yet whether we can truly build artificial superintelligence. Maybe there's some limitation we don't understand. But if we can, and it seems like maybe we can, then you start to have this idea of we are an ant colony and human explorers arrive on the shore and they start building buildings. And They don't need to hate ants or to have any ill will towards ants to completely destroy the colony because they will just build a foundation of their next building on top of it. And it's that concept that we rely on this fragile set of ecosystems for our food and for our air and for things like that. And this thing with this footprint just comes in, they start starts just making stuff and using atoms and reconfiguring everything. And very quickly, it just drives us to extinction or sets us back to the Stone Age. Or maybe we still have our world, but AI dictator is now in charge and, you know, electrocutes everyone to death instantly who does something against the law. And we are all terrified to defy the AI dictator. So there's some pretty dystopian possibilities. Now, there's also if we can get it right somehow. I read the Ian Banks culture series and he he paints this utopic future of a super advanced AI run civilization that's great to live in, where we all live as long as we want to. And. Everyone's protected by the AI. No one can hurt each other anymore. And we can all live and do whatever we want and fulfill our passions and do amazing things and travel the universe. And that could happen too. I mean, this thing is smart enough. It can do anything we want. It can solve any problem. So both the short and the long term get me excited and terrified at the same time. You referenced earlier that you started writing a blog post, I think in June 2016 or something like that. And then it became a bigger blog post and a bigger blog post and sort of consumed you. And it ended up being a 300,000 word book. And when you cut it down to 100,000 words and the title of it very nicely is What's Our Problem? So it's a book about why our societies feel like they're falling apart in certain kinds of ways. So why is it? What's our problem? And how do we build healthier, saner societies? First of all, I'm excited to talk to you about this because you've been a thought leader in this area for a long time. So part of my research to understand what's going on in society is reading books on psychology, on history, you know, on on, on political science and stuff like that. 
But you also need to just look at what people are saying today and understand what's this culture war and keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening. And you were on the, among the dozen people who I think were out there saying very insightful things. And I think you were on point with a lot of what you were saying. So I appreciate talking to you about this of all people. I mean, it's a huge question. You know, what's our, what's our problem? And when I say our, I'm talking mostly about liberal democracies and specifically, you know, the U.S., but I think it applies to lots of current liberal democracies. And I think the first thing is to understand what is liberal democracy is and what makes it work when we're born into it. And so are our parents and so are our grandparents. We think it's just kind of the state of nature. This is just how society is. This is how humans live. No, it's not. This is an artificial machine we built to live inside of. And um, the people built that a couple hundred years ago. And they built it based on philosophy and trial and error that's been going on for thousands of years. And it's an ingenious invention. And we're all living these amazing lives because of this incredible structure that we got to be born into. But this is not nature. This is not natural. This is not actually how things would be if we let them be however they would be. So it's important to just understand that this is something very special and it's artificial. And it's artificial in its values. The concept of equality of opportunity is the sacred thing and freedom is the sacred thing and human rights and individual rights and freedom of religion and freedom of speech. The idea that these are all obviously very important, good things, that's one philosophy. Not everyone agrees with it, but it is the philosophy of a liberal democracy. And then you have these institutions that are built to uphold these things. You have the courts and you obviously have the different branches of government. And then you have universities and you have, you know, research institutions and, you know, that produce knowledge for us. And these core kind of pillars that hold up the house, the liberal house. And those pillars, the strength of those pillars and the strength of the house comes from a bunch of people shared beliefs in those values and trust in the institutions, shared trust in the institutions and a general kind of shared reality. And that makes a very strong, very robust house if you have that. But those things can deteriorate. There's no, you know, these aren't actual physical steel beams. These are kind of abstract beams based on things like human trust. And what you've seen is a very big shakeup of our environment in the last 50 years, but especially the last maybe 10 with things like the media landscape changing from broadcasting to the whole country to these tribal narrow cast news stations that are entertainment more than news and social media and the advent of this thing that algorithmically incentivizes outrage that is easy to manipulate, you know, for foreign countries can get there, get in there and start culture wars. And this concept of these things are creating separate realities for different political tribes. And that the concept of political tribalism rising up as the core source of tribalism. It's not racial tribalism anymore. It's not national, you know, xenophobia tribalism. This is this left versus right, red versus blue color war is because of things like the media and social media and some structural changes to the Congress and everything's like, you end up with this binary color war across the country. Um, you know, we always are tribal, but the tribalism is usually distributed. Some people are worked up about their local politics and other people, their state politics and their national. Some people are much more patriotic and they're anti, you know, Soviet Union in the old days or Germany or whatever it is. Those have kind of all fallen away and leaving one tribal divide that all this tribalism is concentrated into. And then it's been hypercharged by the media environment. So the bigger story there is that it has, I think, threatened the liberal house, the strength of it in a very serious, very scary way. And that I focus in on, you know, two stories, a shorter version of the kind of MAGA Trump story. And then, I'll, you know, in, in, in general, the kind of decline of the Republicans from Reagan to today and how it's kind of become the opposite of what they used to stand for. And then the social justice movement, the woke movement, specifically the woke movement, which I call social justice fundamentalism, which I think is the opposite of Martin Luther King style 
gay gay marriage movement style, women's suffrage movement style, liberal social justice. I think it is the opposite of those things, of those movements. And that I think those movements, the liberal social justice movements, where their goal was, we want more liberalism. We want this house, this liberal house to be truly liberal. We want it to actually represent the things it stands for, that people are created equal, that that everyone is, has equal rights under the law and things like that, and that we don't live in any kind of apartheid. Let's make this house better. The woke movement is a wrecking ball outside the house that says the liberalism is bad. bad. This house is bad. We need to knock it down. Because liberalism is bad, we also don't care about the tools of the house, the values. Free speech is bad. Instead of using free speech to make the house better, using the tools of the house to fix the house, we're going to try to break the tools of the house and the house itself. And I think the MAGA movement, in a lot of ways, is the same thing. Reaganism was classic, this is the best house ever, let's build the foundation and keep it strong. And I think that the MAGA movement is saying, this house is rigged and corrupt and let's break the foundation of it, you know, because it's wrong anyway and, and the elections are for all fraud and everything. So... I think when you're so caught up in the red versus blue color war, you stop worrying about the institutions, you stop trusting them, you stop trusting each other, and you fall for, oh, this movement wears blue, and I'm on the blue team, so it must be good. And even though you are a liberal, lowercase l liberal, and you believe in the House, you end up supporting the movement that's trying to break the House. And even though you are you think you're a conservative, you start supporting a red movement and a demagogue that's the opposite of conservative because you're so caught up in this red versus blue color war that you totally forget what actually matters. You don't zoom out and say, this house is, we all, we're all pro-house before we are left or right. So I could go on forever, but that's kind of the idea is just thinking of liberal democracy as a house and then understanding why I think it's in danger. And so very briefly, because people should go and read the book, which is really, in the ways that you approach other topics, it's both very simple and deep. It expresses a sort of deep narrative about what has happened in the last years and deep understanding of it in these very, very simple, striking terms, but then lead to metaphors that stay with you and so on. But very briefly, how do we repair the house? What do we do to actually put it back in order? I think there's two buckets of change we can do. And I focused on the first one because I think the second one requires a whole book of its own. The first one, I think, is just, uh, there's a lot of people that know, that already agree with what I just said. And they know that liberal democracies are good and that they're fragile and that we need to push back against a lot of the movements that are trying to break it down and that free speech is in peril and that we need to defend it. Even if it's your tribe, that's the one who's attacking it. You need to stand up to them and all of this. But they don't, they're too scared to, to speak out because it's a scary time to speak out. The first thing I would say is that there's a lot of people that have, like I said, fallen for the, you know, the media narrative or they think Wokeness must be social justice, today's version of social justice. And they think that Trump is, a, you know, is actually trying to make America great again. So the first thing needs to be kind of an awareness movement. But how do you build awareness? By speaking out. So you need courage. The people who are aware of this stuff need to speak out. That helps build awareness in others, which reduces the burden of courage because now more people believe it and you can start to, and it can spiral upwards. Awareness and courage go together. Courage builds awareness. Awareness help makes it, requires less courage and makes people want to be more courageous because they get angry once they're aware and... But I think we've fallen into the opposite spiral, which is what's the opposite of awareness and courage, which is kind of like delusion and cowardice, right? And so cowardice makes people be quiet, which allows the demagogues and the demagogue movements to con you know, indoctrinate people and so builds more delusion. And then you know, now more people believe those things. It's really scary to speak out, so more cowardice. And so I think we've fallen into kind of this, this spiral of silence and delusion. And I think we need to get out of that. And so uh, the best thing you can do is, if you do agree with me on these things, is start speaking out to your friends. If you want to go public with it, even better in classrooms. And it's hard and you might suffer some consequences, but it's worth it. You know, this is an existential threat. So awareness and courage, I think, you know, and that's, of course, that's 
you know, that's a soft solution. That's not concrete, but it is, I think, the low-hanging fruit. I think so much can actually improve just with those things. I am starting to see it. I think cancel culture has less power than it used to be. It's less fashionable than it used to be. More people are comfortable criticizing the woke movement. I would like to see more Republicans running for office that are willing to criticize Trump. And then the second bucket of things is stuff that people like uh, Jonathan Haidt and Tobias Rose Stockwell and Ezra Klein and other people have taken cracks at, which is we need specific structural changes, either to social media algorithms or to the rules for primary elections, uh, you know, and, and many other things. There are structural ways we can tweak the environment to be less harmful to be driving things in this direction less so. So I think that once we have the first thing going on and more people are speaking out, we could talk about the problem because if you don't have awareness and courage, you can't even talk about the problem. Once we can talk about it, now we can start saying, okay, what are some concrete steps we can do? And that's, I didn't dig deep there because that's a whole other book. Uh, Maybe I'll do that book one day, but I'm just going to focus on that first thing, which is let me try to paint why I think this is a problem and what the problem is specifically and how we got here and why it's so scary and then encourage people to start speaking out about it. Tim Urban, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.